Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The race to the White House 2020 has begun this week in earnest, but not quite in the expected manner. This was supposed to be the day that one or more of the leading candidates for the Democratic Party nomination seized the initiative, hailing a good result in the first caucuses of the campaign in Iowa and using it as a springboard to gain momentum for the primaries ahead. But instead of headlines about a Sanders surge or a boost for Buttigieg, the news emerging from Iowa overnight was about chaos, confusion and anger, as what the party termed quality control issues in the reporting of data from voting centres around the state left it unable to declare a result on schedule. Later in the podcast, our Europe editor Patrick Smith will be taking us on a deep dive into the EU's negotiating strategy in the talks to begin next month on its future relationship with the UK. But first, it's to that Democratic Party debacle and I'm joined from Des Moines in Iowa by our Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch. This is an awful mess, Suzanne. What went wrong? Yeah, look, there seems to have been a complete breakdown in the system of reporting results. Iowa has long operated this very idiosyncratic way of uh, voting. um, Over nearly 1,700 uh, precincts are called across the state. People gather at 7pm and then they go and cast their vote in a very public setting. I went to uh, one of these caucuses myself in southern Des Moines and I suppose... Like a lot of people, I spent the beginning of the evening thinking, oh, isn't this a lovely exercise in kind of collective democracy? People are, uh, you know, move from one part of the room to the other when uh, when their candidates are called. And then the candidates, uh, their representatives try and encourage them to, to go and move with them. But then by the end of the night, um, it began to emerge that this system is antiquated and, and basically flawed, that there was uh, a problem when the precinct captains are called, uh, the people in charge try to call in their results to headquarters the system failed. Number one, there was a new app that had been introduced. This did not seem to work and there had been reports during the week of problems with it. And second of all, the backup system for this, i.e. a telephone hotline, also collapsed under the weight of the calls. Um, There were reports of precinct captains being on hold for hours, then being, you know, then they were hung up on. Um, So the reality now is it's now Tuesday and there is no result from the IO caucuses. So I think that the major, this could in fact you know, be the death knell for the Iowa caucuses. There's long been questions about the wisdom, the suitability of choosing um, the fr- the front runner, essentially, or one of the early front runners in the Democratic race in this manner. And now that there's the, there has been this kind of chaos around it, I think now there's going to be serious questions about looking at the whole system of, of selection. And just, you referred to it there, Suzanne, but just for people who aren't familiar with the caucus system, um, just just how is it supposed to work? I mean, you, you give a flavour of it there. People gather at centres all over the state and physically vote. Yeah. Physically, exactly. So I went to a, it was a school and there, um, in the end, there were 240 caucus goers. So when you walked into the school gym, people were holding signs, somebody for Warren, somebody for Biden, somebody for Buttigieg, and you basically gravitated towards the person you wanted to support. So then, a bit like the Irish system with single transferable voting, um, once the, the quorum was called, uh, the captain um, calculated the threshold that was needed to be viable. That's the word they use here. So in my case, the uh, caucus I was at, the, the threshold was 36. So immediately, um, you could kind of see looking around the room while well, some people did not have those numbers. Tom Steyer, um, he's the billionaire running on a climate change platform. He's, he's pretty good, you know, pretty good candidate, but was never really going to get um, the full results. He had only four people in his corner, for example, and only three qualified in my precinct reached that threshold. Biden, um, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Elizabeth Warren, for example, 
in my precinct did not get enough votes. So then the process started where then people who um, were disqualified, if you like, could either go home and not, you know, give their vote or they um, then they then moved to uh, another another candidate. So somebody who voted for Elizabeth Warren, for example, seeing that she wasn't going to qualify in that precinct, they get a chance to transfer their vote to one of the other candidates still standing. Exactly. And what was happening was that as the as the votes, you know, as it became clear that some groups didn't have the numbers, you could see that the representatives from Bernie Sanders campaign siding up to the Tom Steyer people or the Elizabeth Warren people and trying to encourage them. It was a really interesting exercise, you know, literally. And, and some of the people I spoke to there really had not made up their minds who to move to. Now, a lot of the Elizabeth Warren people uh, moved to Pete Buttigieg. And this seemed, we don't have the results, of course, but this seems to be a trend across the state. The Pete Buttigieg, from what I could see as well, was getting a lot of these what we would call second preference votes. Um, so, you know, in one sense, this is a, re- a really unique, the, the public, the, the collective public nature of it is so unique. But if, I suppose it was um, devised at a time when politics was done by consensus, when in these big rural states, the idea of the caucus was because people couldn't travel that far. And, and you know, it, it, but I didn't notice myself, I found that it quite a casual mode. Um, and for example, I could hear people confused about the process asking the precinct captain, hang on, what happens now? And there was a kind of a general, you know, lack of clarity about the process um, when it came particularly to the transfers. Um, but then as it emerged later on in the night, of course, then all these issues started uh, arising around reporting, calling in the results. But also some people, particularly in the Elizabeth Warren campaign, have suggested that there were problems, kind of like what I was picking up, of confusion about um, how the process itself was was working. So that's that's another issue, which if is, it's proven would be a big problem for Democrats if now people start really raising questions about the whole process, uh, um, uh, as well as the fact that there was a, a problem, a huge problem with the reporting of the results. And so, Suzanne, we don't have the results now as we speak. It's early morning where you are, lunchtime um, in Ireland. But who are likely to be the, the winners and losers from the mess that has unfolded here? Yeah, well, I after my visit at the precinct, I went to the Bernie Sanders um, event. He was due in there and it looks like he had a very strong night. This is what the polls were suggesting. Of course, we don't know, but his people and a few of the other candidates have released their own polling. It's, it's, it's not very accurate. You know, it's not very detailed. But it looks like he had a good night. Pete Buttigieg had a good night. But potentially Joe Biden did not. There were some reports he could have ended up fourth. Um, but we, of course, we don't know. Um, like what I could see, if, if you like, my little example and where I was with 240 people, it just captured the the, uh, the the divides that we've been hearing about. So in the, the Bernie Sanders corner was by far the biggest in where I was. And the um, the demographics were very striking. It was it was virtually not all, but mostly maybe 70 percent very young people, whereas the Biden, Joe Biden did cross cross the threshold in my precinct. I, at one point I looked around and I, I really there was nobody under the age of 60, 65 even in his group, not one. So Joe Biden definitely has got the older vote. Bernie Sanders got the younger vote. Um, so it was almost like in microcosm what we've been hearing was being totally borne out by what I was visualising. The fourth front runners, Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders and to a lesser extent Warren. That's what was represented in my precinct. Um, but look, it's it's it, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, Joe Biden. Some people are believing really got a got a good pass here because if this had been a bad night for him, this is what people were were predicting. He was able to kind of sidestep that, if you like. He gave a speech like the rest of them, um, kept it quite vague. But you know, it's onwards and upwards now to New Hampshire. So I suppose whenever the results from Iowa come uh, come out, you know, the the impact of those will be will be lessened because already 
the New Hampshire and the following primaries, that's now the focus. Yeah, so in one respect then, Bernie Sanders is potentially the big loser from this, isn't he? Because even if he emerges victorious, he's lost the opportunity to get the kind of momentum you usually get from a win in Iowa. Absolutely. And that's, I was at the campaign rally, it was absolutely packed. So press where we, we finally got in and we're, I was standing there with... At a Sanders rally, sur- yes. Yeah. At a Sanders rally, just surrounded by really, really young, animated, huge energy in the room. Let me, let me begin by stating that I imagine, have a strong feeling that at some point the results will be announced. And when those results are announced, I have a good feeling we're going to be doing very, very well here in Iowa. So when he came out to speak, he was quite dignified. Um, some people were wondering, you know, what, we, what he was going to say on this. Um, but um, Pete Buttigieg, uh, another part of town, he delivered what you could only call a, a, a victory speech, saying it's been a great night, we're, on, we're, we're emerging victorious on our way to New Hampshire. Right off the stage here in Iowa, incredible night, uh, incredible result, and such phenomenal energy here. We are headed to New Hampshire victorious, and now we got to build for the next phase. So if you're able to help, I hope you'll take a moment to chip in. Uh, we are on our way toward big news in New Hampshire, too, and we'll be pushing every day. So it was quite interesting that we had this, this spectacle of people, candidates delivering quasi-victory speeches when there were literally not one result from the entire state. Um, so, but I think it reflects Buttigieg's confidence he's done well. And of course, he needed to do well. He's kind of the dark horse. He's the outsider, the political newcomer really on the national scene. Um, but he has had put in a huge effort in Iowa. He's popular there. Um, so it really means a lot for him to do well in Iowa because over across the country and other parts he's, he's not well known at all so he, it, it 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 can make or break his campaign Iowa and New Hampshire um, so yeah and as I say signs are that he he performed quite well Is it possible Suzanne that some of Bernie Sanders' supporters will see a, a conspiracy here you know the, the party establishment, yeah, establishment I mean, will do anything to stop him yeah, yeah. This is the, this is the danger, and it's it's it was quite frankly, you know, a farce really that um, this is a an election that's taking place against um, accusations and by the by U.S. authorities of Russian interference in the last election. The DNC, the Democratic National Committee, had spoken a lot about you know the integrity of the process. So this really makes a mockery of that. And of course, um, the Democratic Party is still smarting from conflict over the 2016. Uh, primary process, but also the Iowa caucuses. Uh, Bernie Sanders lost that to Hillary Clinton by 0.2 of a percentage. It was, it was tiny, just a razor thin majority by um, Hillary Clinton. And that was even disputed at the time. So, yeah, it, for, for Sanders supporters, this may fuel a lot of the scepticism about the system. Already we've had figures like Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son, uh, son saying the whole process is rigged. Um, we've had Joe Biden Joe Biden's campaign wrote a very strongly worded letter saying they want more information before the final results are published. Of course, Sinnings pointed out to the fact that, you know, of course, he may have not done that well. Um, whereas people like Bernie Sanders maybe do not want to undermine anything like the, about the integrity of the system. But no, it's a huge issue now for the Democratic Party going forward. It's showing a party that's divided, that's not on top of its game. It was already a fractious, very divided debate. Uh, and now we, we here we are in Iowa after all the millions and millions that have been spent here, all the time the candidates have put in here, all the volunteers, and really they've come out with nothing. Um, but as I say, there was always a debate here, and it, it, it's a very important debate that Iowa, that this, this whole system, Iowa 
consolidated its status as the front runner back in the 70s when uh, the DNC changed the rules. But there's always been questions about does that make sense? Iowa's a predominantly white state. Only a very small percentage of registered Democrats actually get out and vote, like 200,000 people or so. And yet they have this outsized role in picking the nominee. Now, of course, they don't actually pick the nominee, but the reality is that if you win Iowa, you get, you know, you've got a lot of momentum. So I think there's going to be real questions now um, about whether this is the right way to do this. Yeah, because IOS just sends, it sends very few delegates um, to, to the Democratic Party convention in the summer, doesn't it? I mean, it should have very little influence, really. Exactly. It's got 41 out of whatever amount of number of thousands. Um, and, and of course, that would be the Joe Biden campaign had been seeking to downplay expectations, saying, look, even if we lose Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, look at the math, as they say, that really these states don't have many delegates. And actually, when you get into the later states like South Carolina, but even states like um, California, for example, where there's huge delegates, uh, they're arguing, well, he's going to start picking up seats there. So really, it doesn't matter. But, you know, it's momentum versus maths. You do need to have to, to, to you know, get a good run on things. And of course, for Biden, like New Hampshire is a neighboring state to both uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So they're going to do very well in that state which is now the primary is less than a week away. Um, but I think the Joe Biden people would be sighing, you know, breathing a sigh of relief because the, the buzz, the news around was that Biden had underperformed last night. We may get a get more details on that later uh, today, later on Tuesday. And presumably, uh, Suzanne, you mentioned Eric Trump there a moment ago, but the Republican Party and Donald Trump in particular are going to make political as much political capital as they can from this. Yeah, absolutely. I think Trump has just been tweeting this morning saying, basically making the argument, you know, you can't even trust Democrats to do this right. How are they going to run the country? Um, and it's it's highlighting a division between Democrats. And it's also allowing, as we were saying there, to paint the electoral system as flawed. And, for example, if he takes on, you know, Bernie, like for, for Donald Trump, he the Republicans had wanted Bernie Sanders to win in, in a sense uh, because they have been trying to cast him as socialist, which he is, but saying, you know, warning about the dangers of socialism. Um and it's it's interesting that Donald Trump's giving his State of the Union address this evening, Tuesday night. And last year at that State of the Union address, kind of out of nowhere, he started um, conjuring up the spectre of socialism. Uh, and it was seen as a hit. So the Republicans want, to, want an uh, opponent like Bernie Sanders. That's what they love. They feel they could beat him, that he would never win any swing voters. They, they're not so keen on somebody like Joe Biden, but they're they're watching this this very closely. Of course, the Republicans had their own caucus at the same time, but Donald Trump, that was pretty standard. Donald Trump was just elected there. But it's interesting, some of his surrogates were up here. His son, Donald Trump Jr., Lara Trump, they were all in Iowa. You know, Iowa has got a very strong Republican support base, and that kind of, you know, was a, was an illustration that they, they're using. And they're going to do the same in New Hampshire. They're going to be, I think, a Trump rally a couple of days before the New Hampshire primary. So, look, they're very much, Trump is very much keeping abreast of what's happening in the Democratic field because the Trump campaign have got a very, very good uh, ground campaign ahead of the election. And you anticipated my last question there, Suzanne, the State of the Union address. You're heading back to Washington mm. now um, for that. It uh, might be Trump's mm. last, certainly his last before the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, any indication as to what um, kind of tone we can expect from that or what content we can expect from that? Yeah, well, what will be interesting to see is whether he mentions much about impeachment. Um, there have been reports that some of his allies on Capitol Hill have warned him against that, have said, don't go down that route, you know, try and keep the presidential tone um, there's been suggestion that he's going to talk about what he's done for the blue collar worker and um, the working ordinary American. He's going to tell the economy, uh, the trade deal, particularly the recent phase one trade deal with China. So these are all the kind of themes we're going to see tonight. Um, it will also be interesting, of course, to see the dynamic, the visuals, if you like, between Nancy Pelosi and Trump, 
when he gives that speech, uh, it's always interesting to watch. But particularly now, it's, uh, you know, it's he's delivering the speech on the eve of a key impeachment vote. It now looks like on Wednesday, the Senate will take its final vote on the articles of impeachment against Trump. And all signs are that he will be acquitted. So, look, it's interesting timing. A lot of events are coinciding or colliding this week. Um, but I think all of them are good for Donald Trump, really. It looks like he's going to be acquitted. And then the mess in Iowa with the results uh, will, will probably benefit uh, Republicans in some way. Suzanne, in Des Moines for now. Thank you. Thanks again to Suzanne Lynch in Des Moines. We're switching the focus to Brexit now, and I'm joined from Brussels by our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. Paddy, Brexit has happened. The UK formally left the EU at 11pm last Friday, and now the focus turns to the negotiations to begin next month on the future relationship between the two. Both sides fired their opening shots yesterday, Monday. Boris Johnson with a speech in London and Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator who was speaking in Brussels. What do you think, Paddy, will be the EU's priorities in these talks? Well, the EU priority is, uh, uh, they say, a full um, long-term relationship with uh, as few barriers to trade uh, with the UK as, as possible. Uh, but the, the condition is that the internal market must be preserved, that the borders of and the, the, the controls that, that delimit the, the European market must be safeguarded. So they have made it clear uh, that the UK is going to have to accept rules uh, in terms of trade that do not allow it an unfair advantage in, in uh, uh, trading uh, and uh, competitive uh, advantage. So, for example, in the areas of state aids and uh, competition, which are the uh, very important uh, parts of, of trade rules, uh, which make sure, for example, that governments can't uh, give large amounts of money to businesses that can then compete more cheaply with, with their rivals. Uh, that in state aids and competition law, the British will have to not only sign up to the current regulations that exist in the EU, but but agree to change their regulations in future if if the EU changes its regulations. This is what has been called dynamic alignment. And it's it's quite a severe demand. And it is something that the British will find very difficult to accept for political reasons, because it's very much the rule taker uh, role that they, they don't have any option with. So that's that's where we're starting. Both sides are now setting out their opening negotiating positions for trade talks that will run uh, until uh, next December. Uh, they hope to have them concluded and a deal, a treaty ready by October in time for ratification by December. But that's a very tight schedule, and nobody really believes that the British uh, um, can do the work necessary in that in that time. And just to ex- explain that again, Paddy, the, the, the dynamic alignment, if you like, because people are probably going to hear this phrase, um, you know, repeated over the next few months. There are some areas, as I understand it, where, where Michel Barnier in his speech um, allowed that, you know, Britain would have a say in future changes in the rules, such as, you know, in social and labour standards and so on. But what so then, why did he make that distinction, but, you know, involving state aid and competition rules that, you know, every time the EU changes the rules, Britain is going to have to sign up to the change, you know, regardless of, of, of what its own position is? I think the, the answer to that is that the, the, the basic rule is that there must be no uh, possibility by changing regulations and changing labour standards or, or um, environmental standards, that, that Britain can undercut 
uh, its rivals in in Europe. And they're, they're very adamant about this. This is something that all of the member states are completely agreed on. The fear is that the most likely area where big changes in regulatory rules could make the, make a, a crucial difference are in these areas of state aids and competition policy. And if you know, if the British government were allowed uh, to, for example, give huge um, subsidies to airlines uh, to allow them uh, compete better with the European airlines, this would be a, a breach of the internal market rules, and uh, they would have to they would have to be stopped and they will be required to maintain the same standards of state aid rules as uh, the rest of the European Union. Now, we know where the UK stands in relation to this or some of this, because shortly after Michel Barnier spoke in Brussels on, on Monday and the EU published its negotiating draft and negotiating mandate, Boris Johnson outlined his opening position in, in a speech in London. It goes without saying that the NHS is not on the table and we will not accept any diminution in food, hygiene or animal welfare standards. But I must say to the America bashers in this country, if there are any, in doing free trade deals, we will be governed by science and not by mumbo jumbo. Now, he wants the EU to give Britain what he calls a Canada-style free trade agreement. What would that involve, Paddy? He ha- I mean, this is quite interesting, that he has basically admitted that if he doesn't uh, respect full alignment, he's going to have to pay for goods going into the, into the European Union. I think that was the most important element of Johnson's speech, the recognition of, of a reality about the way trade talks work. Uh, he, he can't walk away from the idea that, that there is no such thing as a free advantage. The Canada deal is a free trade agreement which does impose some kinds of tariffs, some kinds of uh, control quotas on uh, goods traveling between um, Canada and, and, the, and the the EU. It's um, somewhat lighter on the regulatory front than uh, the EU plans for the British um, uh, agreement. But that, uh, Barnier is saying quite clearly, is why it's not going to be acceptable. Canada is much further away. It's a much smaller economy in relative terms. And so slight variations in regulatory standards don't matter as much. That's not going to apply uh, to, to Britain. At one point in his speech, Johnson mentioned Australia and said if Britain can't have a Canada-style deal, it can have a trading relationship with the EU like Australia's. But now, of course, Australia doesn't have a free trade um, arrangement or agreement with the EU. So why do you think Johnson mentioned Australia at, at all? Um, nobody's really very sure about that. They're, they're somewhat confused because it doesn't actually mean anything specifically. The only thing about the Australian uh, setup is that there is a, uh, a migration system that the Australians have, which the British are very pleased about, and they like the the quotas the Australians have for controlling migration, and that may have been on his mind. Uh, but that's really nothing to do with trade. Um, could it perhaps have been a, again a kind of an oblique warning to the EU that the, he he is still saying that he's prepared to walk away without without any deal, which is, has been his position all along? Yeah, but but the European Union isn't very impressed by that because it, it is Britain which will suffer most uh, if it has to put up World Trade Organization uh, tariffs and barriers. Uh, it is going to, it's going to face a really very severe uh, obstacle to getting into its largest market. 
So he can bluster all he likes, but in fact, that doesn't doesn't get him anywhere and, and Europe is not impressed. What else is at stake in these negotiations, Paddy, apart from trade? Well, uh, there are two other elements in, in the package that the Commission announced yesterday. Uh, one is on security and political cooperation and judicial cooperation. And that's quite, impos- quite important. I think it's going to be quite straightforward to agree largely, but it does have preconditions that the British will find uh, somewhat difficult to take. For example, the whole judicial cooperation will collapse if Britain repudiates the European Convention on Human Rights, which in the past they have talked about doing. Now, I'm, I, my understanding is that the Tory party has, has moved away from that position, but it's there nevertheless that they have to adhere to the standards set by the European Convention. Uh, the, the other side of the, the um, agreement is what's called governance, and that's all, all to do with how you deal with disputes. And, and uh, at, the, at the core of that uh, is, again, this thorny issue, which, again, is very neuralgic for, for the British, which is the role of the European, uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union uh, to interpret e- EU law. Uh, Britain does not like the idea that in the event of disputes, of legal disputes, uh, the, the wretched European court uh, will be able to intervene and make, make rulings about, about the nature of the law. So that's going to be a difficult, difficult one to, to get around. Um, will these different strands, Paddy, be kept discreet from each other? For example, is there an acceptance on both sides that the security um, and judicial arrangements um, should be kept separate from trade? Or could you have a scenario where there's a threat to withdraw security cooperation unless you give us a deal on trade that we want? Well, I think nothing will be agreed until everything is agreed. That's the main thing. But there, but there, there are 12 strands of negotiation going to be happening simultaneously. And the... the um, these will progress at, at, at different paces, but uh, they will be started all together. And the Commission is saying, uh, look, we accept that it's likely that they all won't conclude at the same time, in which case we'd have to make take emergency measures to prioritise those areas where the effect would be the most dramatic in terms of what happens if you don't have a deal. So some of that is, is a, bit, uh, a bit vague. But there isn't any question of doing separate deals uh, um, on on security and on on trade, uh, they will be um, part of an overall package. As will indeed fisheries, which is another thorny issue, which will be negotiated simultaneously, and uh, with, where the British and the French have been making very noisy comments about protecting either their fisheries or their markets, and uh, the. Um, uh, agreement there is likely to be proved quite quite uh, difficult. And in the draft mandate published on Monday, um, Paddy, there was a, a kind of a warning shot, if you like, for the EU about any failure to implement the provisions of the withdrawal agreement and, and its protocols, including one on Ireland, that they would have serious consequences or that would have serious consequences. What was that about? Uh, that was a an important reminder to the British that they that the withdrawal agreement is now in the bank and can't be re- renegotiated or reneged on. And specifically, um, Boris Johnson has been making a lot of waves by his repeated claims that Northern Ireland businesses will not face any controls, uh, checks in the, in the Irish Sea, uh, and that uh, this is all un- completely unnecessary. Uh, Brussels is saying to uh, the British that unless they start planning to put those controls in place, they're going to have difficulty with the other agreement. 
the the it, 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 there can't be any question of the uh, non-implementation of the withdrawal uh, agreement and specifically in relation to the North and protection of the Good Friday Agreement. And, and Irish diplomats were stressing that this is actually quite a significant um, statement in, in the, in the um, document. Uh, Barnier was in Belfast last week and was talking about the need to set up urgently a joint working group to put those sort of measures in place. And he made it absolutely clear again in the last few days that the um, commitment to controls on the Irish Sea was uh, absolutely locked into the withdrawal agreement. You couldn't, you couldn't argue your way around it. This is important because Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar, when they reshaped the uh, uh, protocol on 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 Ireland in the, in this sort of dramatic breakthrough that finally got us a deal on the withdrawal agreement. Um, they moved away from having the Northern Ireland Protocol as a sort of insurance policy uh, in case and until uh, a new deal was done with the British. The reality is that the controls that are being put in place on the Irish Sea are permanent; that they are there for good. And it is something that the, the European Union is completely adamant about. British proposals for a free trade agreement do not uh, supersede uh, the idea of controls in the, on the RC. In fact, what isn't understood properly is that a completely free trade agreement without any um, quotas or without any tariffs uh, does not mean that you don't have borders because controls and checks have to still take place on goods uh, transiting over borders, even if tariffs aren't going to be levied. So that that's that is an important part of uh, the agreement is the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. And are there concerns in Brussels about Boris Johnson's commitment to that element of the withdrawal agreement? Well, they're they're proceeding on the basis that uh, it, it, this is agreed, and the British can't walk away from it, and it doesn't really matter what Boris uh, says. And they're they're trying to set up this working group to uh, start the planning and, and to make sure that it's in place by by the end of de- December. Um, and Barnier has promised to repeat, uh, to repeatedly report uh, during the course of the next 11 months on the progress being made on the implementation of, of the withdrawal agreement. And, and uh, this is central to, to that. The other thing that, of course, that is part of the withdrawal agreement, uh, which Brussels is is quite keen to remind Britain about is the commitment to pay the so-called Brexit bill, um, the 50 billion euros. And um, there shouldn't be any illusion in London that they can start waiving this uh, as a threat to the negotiations in, on, on the future relationship. This is a done deal and it, it, Brussels will not tolerate any suggestion that they wouldn't uh, pay the money in full. And so just looking ahead and Paddy to the negotiations that begin um, um, formally next month, who do you think holds the strongest hand? And I'm wondering what do you think are the strongest cards that uh, each, each side has? Well, there's a certain uh, logic to the European position that it, the British would find it very difficult to, to get away with, get away from. And as Barnier says, it's a question of choices for the British. If they want a close relationship, then they have to accept some kind of regulatory alignment. If they don't, uh, the 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 price they will pay is in terms of tariffs and quotas. So, 
I think I think that logic will work itself out in the course of the next few months, and we will see the British adjusting their position uh, to uh, fit in with something that is going to be very difficult to move the Europeans on. There certainly won't be any fundamental changes uh, in terms of the European position, uh, and I, th- I think that that um, that will gradually dawn on the British. Paddy Smith in Brussels, thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.